0: Mexico produces a massive amount of seafood. It's very important to their economy. It's very important to a lot of very poor, small-scale fishermen. And when you have an absolute lack of management and
1: enforcement of regulations at a government level, that threatens that whole system.
0: This is Megan Westmeyer. She's with the NGO Sustainable Fisheries Partnership. She's been keeping a close eye on the shrimp caught in the upper Gulf of California and what this fishery has to do with the vaquita, the small porpoise on the brink of extinction. She says the issues threatening the vaquita go all the way up to the top. All of those livelihoods in Mexico, all of the connected livelihoods in the United States, all the people that want to eat this healthy, high quality protein, it's all threatened by lack of good stewardship by the Mexican government. and. I think that's the bigger issue. As much as I don't want to see vaquita go extinct, it's just a sign of a much bigger problem that threatens a lot more than just the vaquita. I'm Ruxandra Guiri and this is The Catch, a series from Foreign Policy looking at modern day fishing. This season, we're focusing on the upper Gulf of California where illegal fishing is threatening the life of the vaquita, the world's smallest porpoise, and the livelihood for many traditional and artisanal fishers. But as Megan Westmeyer says, it's much bigger than that. Peeling back the layers of the story, you're confronted with the limitations of conservation, illegal fishing and cartels, the catastrophic impact of weak governance and the overbearing weight of market forces where astronomical prices for pricey seafood has turned much of this aquarium of the world into a free for all. Today on The Catch, part two of our series, A Complex Web. We'll explore what's led to the dire situation faced by the vaquita in the fishing communities in this region. Now let's head back down to the Gulf. It's 9 a.m. on a very cold winter day, a few days before Christmas. We left before the sun came up. And since then, we've driven through a magical desert of dunes and rocky, arid landscapes. In the car are Ernesto, the Mexican journalist, Alex, the environmentalist at the Center for Biological Diversity, and me, the one with the mic. We spent the night in Mexicali, the capital of the state of Baja California, a large city of more than a million people on the border with California. And we're now en route south, towards the Golfo de Santa Clara, town of approximately 4,000. El Golfo de Santa Clara is located in the state adjacent to Baja California, Sonora, in the northwestern tip of the Gulf of California, near where the Colorado River flows into a broad delta. Ernesto has been coming here for years. He says, I believe that 99% of the population here is engaged in fishing. It's what's been done traditionally for generations, and that's everyone's income. You could say it's one of the most productive corners of the sea, because in fishing terms it is. We're in the heart of the Gulf of California. It's already the habitat of the vaquita. It's an area of open waters, estuaries, wetlands, and desert that extends as far as the eye can see. Unlike other communities in the upper Gulf, tourists hardly arrive here. So you don't see those huge resorts and tall towers lining the coast, or even paved roads. But this seemingly rugged area is home to an incredible ecosystem. Only in this corner of the Gulf of California There's great biological diversity where many species are considered rare, endemic, and in danger of extinction, like the vaquita and the large croaker called the totuaba, which we'll talk about a little later. (laughs) Ernesto is calling his contact, Carlos Tirado. He's the leader of the Regional Federation of Small-Scale Fishers, an independent association Tirado is one of the fishers leading the efforts against gillnets in the upper gulf. He also has been promoting things like putting satellite tracking in pangas. We'll talk more about fishers who are passionate about protecting these waters as well as their livelihoods in later episodes. But for now it's good to know that Tirado is something of a resident historian. He's been living in this area his whole life and he's seen it all, which is why Ernesto is trying to get through to him but Carlos Tirado doesn't answer. We're parked in front of his restaurant, El Delfín, located one block from the sea. It has a large, colorful mural of a dolphin on the outside wall. The door is closed. We've come to try to understand how important the fishing industry here is, both locally and nationally. It's a topic that you know very well. Now you've But here Ernesto says Uh when he was campaigning for president, Andres Manuel López Obrador came and sat down to talk with Carlos Tirado here at the restaurant. The dolphin acquired some local fame when in 2013 then presidential candidate and now president of Mexico Andres Manuel López Obrador arrived here and met with Carlos Tirado to talk about fishing. Carlos Tirado and his family not only own this restaurant, they're also in charge of a large fishing operation in the region. The fishing industry began in earnest in Santa Clara about a century ago, in the 1920s. It became known for one fish in particular that was caught and sold in the U.S. and Mexico, the totoaba, also known in Spanish as roncadores or tambores snorer or drums. That's because its swim bladder, which allows it to float, produces unique rhythmic sounds. The totuaba is golden with a slightly bluish tone, and it can measure up to six and a half feet long and can live up to 50 years. Alex Ernesto and I are drinking coffee when Tirado finally walks in. He's a big imposing guy over six feet tall. He appeared a little reluctant to talk to us at first, but he was friendly, and soon he started telling us about his family. Carlos tells us, it seems that my grandparents arrived in the 50s, 50s or 60s. My grandfather was from Sinaloa, and like the others, he was coming with Totuaba fever. I asked Carlos if there was a market for totuaba fillets already. And he told me, yes, it was for the fillets. Carlos is right. Back then, there was still a market for totuaba fillets, but the real demand was for its swim bladder, or as they refer to it here, its buche. The demand came all the way from China, where for several centuries there was a market for a fish that was endemic to the region, the yellow croaker. It was used to make medicinal soups, and it was highly valued. That demand nearly caused the collapse of the yellow croaker fishery by the 1980s. But decades before, by the 1950s, the Chinese market had already turned to Mexico, where it found a replacement in the totoaba. Today, the illegal trafficking of totoaba is done by a transnational network that buys totoaba bladders directly from fishers in the upper Gulf of California and takes them to large border cities like Mexicali or Tijuana. From there, they cross into the U.S. and then it's on to Asia, places like Hong Kong or Guangzhou, where the bladders will sell for a lot of money. And really, how much is a lot of money? On the beach in Mexico, a kilo or roughly two pounds of totoaba bladder sells for, imagine this, $8,000. This price goes up as it's distributed, reaching up to $50,000 per kilo when it's sold in Hong Kong. It's hard to imagine a more profitable fish. A kilo of its bladders is worth more than a kilo of cocaine. And that's an incredible profit that can enrich anyone overnight. So it's irresistible to any fisher it can change their family's life. Carlos Tirado's grandfather was the one who taught his children to fish, and his grandchildren as well. Together, they created one of the largest and most powerful labor groups that exist in the area, bringing together 60 fishing cooperatives with a total of 280 small motorboats, or pangas. But in the 1970s, the Tirado's good fortune took a turn. The illegal trafficking of totoaba led to overfishing, and the situation only got worse until, finally, the Mexican government gave in to international pressure and decided to protect the species. I asked Carlos, and he says, yep, the totoaba ban came, and that's when it starts being illegal. In 1975, the Mexican government banned totoaba fishing. A decade later, it was declared endangered.
2: Foto,
0: eh. We're with Carlos in the dining room of El Delfín. A collection of aquí. old images cover the walls. They're mostly black and white photos documenting the history of fishing in the Golfo de Santa Clara.
2: ¿Quién
0: I ask Carlos whether his dad took the photos, and he says, nope, he just collected them. Carlos shows me one of them. It must be from the 70s. I can see three young, strong men aboard a small boat. Each one is smiling at the camera, posing with their catches, totuabas. They're images that document another era when they fished for white sharks and totuabas as big as themselves. Today, fishing has changed a lot in this region. It is illegal to catch totuaba. But despite that, overfishing continues. They're no longer as big as I saw in pictures from the 70s, because totuabas are being caught before they reach their full size. The upper Gulf of California is also home to another particularly sought-after species, the blue shrimp, also known as the colossal or U8. It's called the U-8 because it takes only eight of those shrimp to weigh a pound. There are also smaller ones, like the U-12. But whatever its size, it's considered one of the best in the world. And it's especially valued in the U.S., where a pound today can cost up to $40. Blue shrimp is caught in the same way that otuaba is, with small motorboats or pangas using gill nets. The gillnets are like a big barrier made of a long plastic web that's anchored to the seafloor with a variety of floats and weights. Imagine a huge floating soccer goal, but with a much thicker mesh. It's a very effective system. Too effective, actually. Gillnets not only catch fish and shrimp, but any other animal like the vaquita. Carlos Tirado invites us to his cousin's house, who's preparing us a lunch of shrimp with butter and then more shrimp, a la diabla, or spicy. It smells so good while we wait for the food. And that's when Carlos begins to tell us how in 2014, he saw a vaquita that had been trapped in a gillnet. That's when he realized that this could happen to any fisher.
2: Carlos tells
0: us that as soon as he saw the dead vaquita in the net, he decided to pay 250 pesos for it. And why, I ask him. Carlos says he was so scared that the vaquita or its photo would bring the attention of the media or environmentalists that he decided to buy it from the fishermen. He then got rid of the carcass, the evidence. Carlos is a leader among fishers, and he was defending his interests and those of his collective. And while he tells me that he doesn't want the vaquita to disappear, he also recognizes that he wants to maintain his right to fish, to earn a living. Carlos has good reason to be concerned about that vaquita picture getting out. Like white rhinos in sub-Saharan Africa, the vaquita in the upper Gulf of California has become an unmistakable symbol of human-caused ecological destruction. And the more the world has paid attention to the vaquita, the greater pressure there's been on the Mexican government to protect it. In the early 90s, the Mexican government had created the so-called Upper Gulf of California Biosphere Reserve in Colorado River Delta, a category of protected area that allows some commercial fishing activities. Unfortunately, this did not stop the decline of vaquitas. In 2017, three years after Carlos paid off to fishermen to get rid of the vaquita catch, the Mexican government went a step further and created something known as Vaquita CPR, which stood for Conservation, Protection and Recovery.
2: I got the call to join a group of veterinarians and scientists to help save the vaquita from extinction by bringing it into human care.
0: The documentary Sea of Shadows managed to capture it in depth. There were 100,
2: and then there were 60, and then there were 30, and now there's fewer than 30. If they stay out there, we believe they're going to all die. The Mexican
0: government had raised $3 million and invited an international team of experts to meet in the fishing community of San Felipe. In addition to experts from Mexico and the US, there were scientists there from Denmark, the Netherlands, Canada, Hong Kong, and the United Kingdom. There was a lot of expectation for what the project
2: could achieve. The definition of success for this project is that vaquitas return to the wild. But this can only happen if the Sea of Cortez is safe for
0: them again. Vaquita CPR represented great hope for the species, something there wasn't much of. It sought to identify, capture, and temporarily relocate as many vaquitas as possible into a marine sanctuary off the coast. The hope was to keep them there until their main threat, gillnets, could be banned for good. An even greater hope was that the vaquitas could reproduce in captivity. At the onset of the vaquita CPR program, Experts traveling on cruise ships saw a pair of vaquitas in their calves as they surfaced to the sea to breathe. The scientists were elated and they moved forward with their plans to capture and relocate vaquitas into a specially constructed area known as the nest. Alex Ernesto and I set off to see what this place looked like. A few days after we spoke to Carlos Tirado, we set out to sea under a bright blue sky. Not a cloud could be seen. The sea wind froze our faces. We were aboard the motorboat of an ex-fisher, Captain Naya. He's known by that name because when he arrived in the area years ago looking for work, he came from the state of Nayarit. After about half an hour, I spotted a massive floating structure where the Vaquita CPR project took place. Uh Standing on its edge of El Nido, or the nest, I could see that they are actually two huge pools or circular aquaculture enclosures filled with seawater. They are 130 feet wide, smaller than the length of an Olympic swimming pool. The two pools together are floating in the sea, and inside them I could only see still water and darkness. In early November 2017, the team managed to capture some vaquitas. American marine biologist Barbara Taylor was on the scene. She remembers what happened next.
2: Unfortunately, they responded very poorly to being handled. We only captured two. One was a young one that was uh, clearly stressed out and was released. The next one was an adult female, not being a mommy, so a perfect candidate. And uh, she seemed to be doing very well and then went into shock and died. It was a terrible defeat for the project and a setback for vaquita conservation. And so that attempt was ended. And after that, we had to look at what was happening and what could be done for vaquita at that point.
0: Captain Naya takes us in Espanga Beyond the Nest. We're inside the refuge area of the vaquita, known as the Polygon. The Polygon was established by the Mexican government in 2005 to try to save the vaquitas that are still there. It's an area larger than Mexico City. It's huge. Fishers know where it is. Their GPS equipment tells them some fishing is allowed there but within the polygon there is a much smaller area a tenth of it which is known as the zero tolerance area where fishing or transit of any kind is completely banned we see large yellow buoys floating in the sea delineating the zero tolerance area right then and there we don't see any pangas fishing in there But Captain Naya tells us it's not a good morning for fishing. There's a good tide, but the wind is hitting hard, so few fishers have gone out today. They know they won't be able to catch much shrimp. On a good day, Captain Naya says you can see up to 80 pangas dotting the coast. Many of them cross into the zero tolerance area, especially at night when darkness cloaks their illegal activity. The Mexican Navy is in charge of patrolling these waters but it's not really a fair fight, says marine biologist Barbara
2: Taylor. So the Mexican Navy's in a very tough position because they've been given the task of enforcing fisheries laws, but they can't actually use force against Mexican citizens. And fishermen know that. So it's very difficult for the Mexican Navy to actually do its full job. And quite frankly, they're pretty outgunned. So they have two enforcement vessels, sometimes three or four. And when we were out uh, doing surveys in 2021, there were 140 pongas out there. I mean, that's, you know, that's, and, and they're very educated and sometimes violent fishermen. So it's a really rough position. But when it
0: comes to the zero tolerance area, The Navy has an ally keeping the pangas in check in the form of Sea Shepherd, a U.S.-based nonprofit marine conservation organization. They engage in direct action campaigns to defend wildlife. Think Greenpeace, but on steroids. We spoke with them on the last season of The Catch as they told us how they chased down an illegal fishing vessel off the coast of West Africa, more than 11,000 miles across the open ocean. In 2014, Sea Shepherd launched Operation Milagro, which means miracle in Spanish. The campaign was specifically designed to protect the Vaquita in the upper Gulf of California. Francois Vansol is a fleet communication officer for the organization and has spent five years working on Operation Milagro.
1: At the beginning, Sea Shepherd was, I think, fairly well received, and then Sea shepherds are to try to find and pull nets. We're using different methods at the beginning, try to find them with hooks until the day we managed to uh, find nets using uh, fish finders um, and sonars. That method radically changed the way we were able to um, monitor the reserve and remove illegal gill nets. Over all these years, we've removed over 1,200 pieces of illegal fishing gear. This fishing gear costs quite a bit of money. And the fishermen and illegal fishermen got really angry at us for doing so.
0: Really angry is an understatement. Many fishers were infuriated and directly retaliated against Sea Shepherd.
1: But we kept our pressure and we, we kept doing what we do best. And that was removing those nets at the time, which led to some confrontation and some violence from the poachers. So the boats have been covered in fuel. The poachers will throw a lot of cocktails at us. They will slingshot rocks and balls of lead.
0: New Year's Eve, 2020, the day of an especially violent confrontation between a panga and a Sea Shepherd ship named the Farley Mowat. That day, through its sonars, radars, and drones, the ship confirmed that an illegal panga was looking for shrimp within the zero tolerance area. The single panga approached the Farley Mowat at high speed, head on. The video was captured by Sea Shepherd's cameras. It looks like a kamikaze mission. In the video, you can see how the small boat suddenly loses control and crashes into Farley Moat's bow. The panga was split in two and it sank. Sea Shepherd rescued the two fishers on board, who were taken to San Felipe in a Navy speedboat. Unfortunately, one of the fishers died and the other was seriously injured. The incident was catastrophic, not only for the fishers and their families, but it also created a tenuous situation for Sea Shepherd's crew. Here's Francois Van Sol.
1: Sea Shepherd has, of course, um, adapted to this. So we've created preventive measures. The the ships were covered with nets to avoid projectiles. Uh, There was uh, heavy protection gear uh, given out to the crew uh, to make sure that our crew was uh, always kept safe. And uh, at, the, at the peak of the, of the confrontation, the ships will, will be attacked uh, several times a week.
0: We'll get more into Sea Shepherd in later episodes. But for now, what's important to note is that the underlying tensions remain in the upper Gulf of California. And outside the zero-tolerance area, gillnets are still abundant. For some fishers, the rewards of illegal fishing still outweigh the risks, whether they're catching shrimp or totoaba. And the Mexican government seems incapable of adequately addressing the issue. But what about the U.S.? What has the American government done to help end the devastating use of gillnets in the Gulf of California? Next on the catch, the U.S. imposes an embargo on shrimp in the upper Gulf of California as the latest measure against illegal fishing but will it work? And that's it for part two of our new season of The Catch. Our show is made possible by the readers of Foreign Policy with additional support provided by the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Maria Jimena Aragon, and Jimena Letgard. Special thanks to our team in Mexico, Alex Oliveira and Ernesto Mendez. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, or head over to foreignpolicy.com, where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. Thanks for listening. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. See you next week.